I am uh, very much looking forward to this series in James, particularly because it is going to be a challenge for me. Um, Not that preaching week to week is never a challenge, but James is particularly challenging, I think. The book of James, uh, there are some, several important things to, to know about it as we begin our study there. It's written by, obviously, James. But the question is, which one? There were two different disciples of Jesus that were named James, and Jesus also had a brother named James, and James being a fairly common name were lots of other Christians named James as well. So which James wrote James? Well, uh, as Christian tradition and history holds, it was written by James, the brother of Jesus, or half-brother of Jesus, I guess you could say, who himself became a, a leader, one of the primary leaders of the Christian church in Jerusalem in its earliest days. You can read about his leadership and some of the things that he was a part of, uh, ways that he was leading the church in the book of Acts. It seems likely that James wrote his letter in the early to mid-40s A.D., so within 10 years probably of Christ's resurrection and ascension to heaven. Many scholars think that James may be uh, one of the first uh, books of the New Testament that was ever written. It is quite old. James, as you'll see in verse 1, addresses his letter to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. What does he mean by that? Well, initially, it sounds very Jewish, right? Very Israelite, like he's writing to the 12 tribes of Israel as they were scattered about the world. And there may be some truth to that. However, from its earliest days, we begin to see the church recognizing that the true Israel is not just the 12 tribes of Jacob, but that the true Israel is made up of all those, Jew and Gentile, who have placed faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. So seems to me that James is using in a figurative way this phrase, 12 tribes in the dispersion, to speak of Christians who maybe became Christians in Jerusalem, but then were scattered about the Roman world as persecution against the church uh, uh, began to kind of heat up there in Jerusalem. I'd like to introduce you this morning to the main theme, the purpose of James writing this letter. And it's there for us in James 1.22, which is kind of a theme verse for the book of James. The, the purpose of this letter is to demonstrate that real faith, that genuine faith in Jesus acts. It does things. Real faith works. Real faith provides its own evidence in the things that it does. Real faith bears fruit. Chapter 1, verse 22, James says this to his audience, But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. I'd like to introduce you this morning to a problem, I mean, collection of mine. Um, Some of you know that uh, I have developed a small uh, collection of typewriters. Uh, I have um, several that are quite old. I have four that are manual like this one that work if you don't even plug it in. That's right, children. It doesn't require electricity. And I have, uh, no, I'm sorry, I take that back. I have five that are manual. I have four that are electric. Uh, but this one's my favorite. This is not the one that started my collection, um, but, but it is the one that I've come to like the most. This is a Royal Quiet Deluxe, which was manufactured uh, either in 1948 or 1949. As soon as I can figure out where the serial number is on this thing, I'll give you a firm date. Um, this just goes to show you that other things, other maybe uh, even people who were manufactured in the 1940s, 40s are still very useful and beautiful. Amen? Amen. That's good. I didn't plan to say that. Um, one, of, one of the things, so part of the reason that, that I have started this collection is, uh, one, I, I, I like old stuff 
that works. Uh, some people collect old cars and restore them. Some people musical instruments and things like that. I like to collect and get working things that I can handle. And uh, typewriters seem to be one of those things for me. The reason that this Royal Quiet Deluxe is my favorite is not because it's in perfect condition. It isn't. There are plenty of dings and dents and there's some stuff that's broken. There's some keys that stick. I lost a screw somewhere that holds something down, I'm sure, but uh, it all still works without it. But part of the reason that I love it is not just because it looks cool, but because it actually works. For several months, um, I would uh, work to uh, uh, type my Sunday morning pastoral prayers on this typewriter in my office before uh, worship on Sunday mornings. And some people who would sneak in to see me early would see me plunking away on this thing, wondering what in the world it was that I was doing. And that's, that's what I was doing. I have an IBM electric wheel rider that I use now. It's just a lot faster, and I can correct my mistakes a lot easier. But one of the reasons that I love having and developing this typewriter collection is not just because it's pretty, but because these things do stuff. I like the fact that I can take a, a manual typewriter like this, open it up, see all the parts, see how the, the ribbon advance works, and, and play with the platen or the roller, as some of you might call it, fix sticking keys or slugs that won't come away away from the ribbon. I like the fact that I can, it's kind, of, it's kind of heavy, but you can even flip it upside down and you can see, if you take a close look, all of the linkages and, and, and things that are in there that make it all work so that when I push down the letter J, it types a J. Uh, I know how it works and that it works and I enjoy just the fruit of its working. Uh, if some of you want to come up a little bit later and play gently on it um, uh, after service, emphasis on gently, uh, please feel free to, to come in and to enjoy something that works. I like the book of James because James tells us that faith is not just something pretty that we put up on a shelf to look at and admire, but that faith is something that works, Right? That when we put it into action, when we exercise it, it does things. There are results from the working of our faith. And that is the purpose of James. This morning, as we look at the first major sort of continuous section of James in verses 1 through 18, we're going to see here that faithful Christians endure trial for the reward of eternal life given by God to those who persevere trial to the point of spiritual maturity. Faith sees the purpose of trials. Faith sees the purpose of tests of our faith. And faith delights in the spiritual maturity and the godly wisdom that are gained through depending on God in times of testing. Our text this morning should move us to a, a right mindset, a renewed mindset on the purpose of trials in our life and to know the means by which we endure them for God's purposes by the faith that He supplies. Will you stand with me as we honor God by reading his word, beginning in James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. James, the brother of Jesus, addresses this to the church. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all, without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. 
For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. God bless his church as we study his word. You may be seated. There is one point that I'd like for us to receive from this text this morning, and then uh, five sort of uh, sub-points or dependent clauses uh, upon that point that we'll look at. The main point to understand from verses 1 through 18 of James chapter 1 is this. Faith joyfully perseveres through trial. Real faith, faith that works, joyfully perseveres through trial. It perseveres through trial with joy because... As James tells us in verses 2 through 4, trials produce endurance and spiritual maturity. Real faith has joy in times of trial knowing that trials bring about endurance and spiritual maturity. As James writes to his audience, here in verse 2 of chapter 1, he gets straight into the content of his letter. James has no time for pleasantries, only a determination to get to their issues. He spends no time telling Christians how happy he is for them or or how glad he is that they are saved or all of those things. He simply gives them greetings in verse 1 and then dives right into the point or, or one of the points of his letter. He begins with here the issue of trial, the issue of testing of our faith. This problem is a reasonable starting point for James, I believe. He's writing to Christians who are likely experiencing hardship in various forms because of their faith in a pagan culture. When you're you're a Christian surrounded by people who don't believe in the God you believe in, who don't worship the Jesus that you believe in, who don't know Christ at all, it it can be a difficult place to live. You can feel like your faith is being tried, being tested regularly. So it makes sense that James would begin here. But immediately... James brings us this paradox right off the bat, saying trials are a source of joy. That may sound self-contradictory. He says, consider it all joy. Consider it pure joy, some of your translations may say, when you meet uh, various kinds of trial. Few statements could be more controversial to us today, I think. How are trials, how are hardships, how can suffering be a source of joy? Well, they are a source of joy when we consider the purpose that God has filled these trials with. Christians are nowhere in Scripture promised a life of ease and contentment, of of simplicity and, and, uh, uh, and even prosperity, quite the opposite. The New Testament is full of near assurances that Christians will suffer for their faith, in their faith, because of their faith. But suffering is not without purpose for the Christian. Suffering is never pointless. 
And the purpose of suffering, James says, is spiritual maturity. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, perseverance. And let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, a picture of maturity, lacking in nothing. James tells us that God allows, God even brings these various tests of faith in our lives, not to tear his people down, not to weaken our faith, but to strengthen it. As the Christian endures difficulty, he grows, she grows in steadfastness or or endurance, in in, in their ability to persevere. But endurance is, is not in itself the goal of trial. Rather, endurance under trial leads to maturity, leads to completeness of faith, as James says. Just like Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, suffering reveals the tested genuineness of our faith, of our trust, of our belief in Christ as Lord. Friend, as we begin this series in James and looking at faith that joyfully perseveres trial, this morning train yourself to see trials as gifts of God's grace. Train yourself to see trial in this life as a good thing. It is for your strengthening. It's for your building up. I remember when I was in elementary school, we would, uh, it, it seemed like every couple of years or so, we would have some, uh, like a science unit in school, and we would make bridges made out of toothpicks or boats made out of popsicle sticks. And it was fun to put these things together, um, maybe not so much for parents that help their children to do these things, but it's fun to put them together to have something that results at the end of it. But how do you know if your bridge is any good? How do you know if your, if your boat is a serviceable boat, even though made out of popsicle sticks? We've well, got to test it, right? You've got to try it. You've got to not just set up that bridge, but put a weight on it. Not just put that boat in water to see the popsicle sticks float, but put something on top of it to see if the boat is seaworthy or a bowl of water worthy. I don't know. But the way that you know whether something is going to work, whether a toothpick bridge or a popsicle stick boat is going to hold up under weight, is to actually put weight on it. Such is the purpose of trials, of testing of our faith in our life. That God in his sovereignty allows our popsicle stick boats, our toothpick bridges of faith to be tested. To show us what our faith is really made of. To show to us where we have points of strength of faith and weak points in our faith that need shoring up, that need the help of God to make stronger. So trial, difficulty, uh, hardship in your life is not a bad thing, but it is a tool in God's hand to make your faith stronger. Train yourself to see trials, not as God's curse on you, but as gifts of God's grace to strengthen your faith. Real faith, sincere faith, endures joyfully all sorts of trials because they are gifts of God's grace, but they endure trials also with the help of God-given wisdom. Look at verses 5 through 8. James says here, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Yes, James says that trials are for our maturing in Christ. They're not out of the control of God, but rather they are under the, the constant control of his sovereignty. There's no trial, there's no test of your faith that comes other than expressly by God's command or allowance. Yet sometimes we lack the ability to see how these trials can possibly be for our good and for God's glory. 
James says the purpose of trials is to bring our faith to full maturity. So it would be lacking in nothing. But in the midst of trial, we often become very aware of what it is that we lack most. A means for helping us persevere. A means to see trial for what it is so we have even a reason to persevere. Often we're beset by difficulty, by discomfort, and immediately we want to quit. We start looking for a way out the moment that that trial begins to creep into our lives. We go scrambling for answers to help make sense of what it is that we're going through. If this is you, friend, and let's be honest, this is most of us when we experience hardship. If this is you, then what you lack is godly wisdom to see your trials rightly. Wisdom is more than just knowledge combined with experience. Wisdom is also knowing what is true. Wisdom is seeing things rightly. Wisdom is living our lives according to greater and deeper spiritual realities because we have come to know the God of the universe, the creator of our souls. Isn't it amazing how just a slight shift in perspective can totally alter how you see your circumstances? The foolish man will look on his hardship and suffering and cry, God, why are you doing this to me? The man of godly wisdom will look on the same trial and say, God, I don't know why, and I may never, but I know that you intend this for my holiness. Give me wisdom to see that. Give me grace to endure. Friend, this morning, if this is you and you struggle to see how trial and testing can be good for your life, can lead to your holiness and God's glory, then this morning, ask God for wisdom to see just that. Ask God for wisdom with faith that he will provide that, uh, to see trials for what they are and from the right perspective. Ask God to change your view on the hard things in life, that these are not things meant to tear you down, but things that God intends to build you up and to make your faith in Christ even stronger. I can think of no better way to illustrate this or to put this application into perspective this morning than to pray right now for wisdom. Will you with me? God in heaven, you are all-knowing. You are all-seeing. You are all-powerful. There is nothing that has ever happened in the course of human history that is outside of your sovereign control and allowance. God, your purposes are far higher than ours. What you intend for us is far more than our sinful hearts would intend for themselves. God, the way you bring about holiness in us is often through a path of more resistance than we would care for. So God, make us wise this morning. Make us wise to see that our hearts and our thoughts are constantly self-oriented. That what we want is happiness more than holiness. Give us wisdom to see, God, how the difficulties you allow to enter our life, how persecutions that we may endure for our faith, how pressures from outside to abandon our faith. Show us, God, how you are using those things. Even through the the will of wicked men, show us how you are using those things in our lives to lead us to a place of stronger faith. God, let us not be afraid of bearing the weight of trial for knowing that as we persevere under it, God, you are sure to strengthen our faith through it but we need wisdom to know this and understand it. We need wisdom to live in light of it. God, give us just that, we pray in Jesus' name. Genuine faith endures trial with the help of God-given wisdom. So if you lack it, pray for it. 
and pray believing with genuine faith that God will give it. Genuine faith, sincere faith, also endures trial with joy because it sees things rightly. Wisdom helps us to see things rightly. But in verses 9 through 11, no sooner does James instruct his leaders to ask for wisdom, to see their trials in the right light, than James helps them to see two particular kinds of trials with the right perspective. So James says, you're going to be tried, and, and the testing of your faith is a good thing. If you need help, ask God for wisdom. And here are two examples of different kinds of suffering, different kinds of trial that you may find yourself in. In verses 9 through 11, he addresses two different Christians, poor Christians and rich Christians, acknowledging that both situations, poverty and wealth in the life of the believer, are are both each in their own right different kinds of trial for the Christian. Let's look first at the poor brother. It is not too very difficult for us to see how being poor in this life could be considered a trial, could be considered a test of faith. Not having sufficient, not having abounding resources is genuinely hard. I take nothing away from that. Poverty tests the Christian's trust that God is good and will provide what he knows is needed. Poverty tests the resolve of the Christian to be content with little, knowing that God has made us rich in spirit through our relationship with Jesus. So the poor Christian should then look on his humbled state with gladness. James says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, knowing that Christ was also poor, a servant to all. And insofar as we endure poverty with faith in Jesus, we share also in his suffering and the glory of his resurrection. It is a trial, it is a test of faith for a Christian to be poor, but it is also a test of faith for a Christian to be rich. It's a bit harder for us to consider wealth in this life to be a trial of sorts, But James indicates that it is. And where the test for the poor brother would be to quit trusting God and to chase after the pursuit of worldly wealth, the test for the wealthy Christian is to see all wealth as ultimately temporary and fleeting. As all wealth to, if constantly pursued, lead us ultimately to death and destruction. Often the temptation for wealthy Christians is to think too highly of their wealth, to place too much faith in what they have accumulated, to place too much value in their, in, in their bank accounts and their ability to maintain and, and even grow them. But this truth remains, as the inimitable, notorious B.I.G. told us, Mo money, mo problems. He's a rapper from the 90s for anybody that may be missing that cultural connection. With more money come more problems. Specifically, for the wealthy Christian, the problem of trying to keep what will ultimately wither and fade. How many wealthy people do you know have we seen in society that that spend their whole lives pinching pennies to only at their death have no control of the wealth that they have accumulated for themselves? So then the rich man, the rich Christian is to look on his wealth for the bouquet of cut flowers that it is. Pretty for a moment, but ultimately dead. He should instead see his wealth as a test of his faith. Will he live to gather more more for himself and to hold on to what he has? Or will the rich brother humble himself as a servant to those who can benefit from his generosity and the use of his wealth as a service to those who are poor? It is a test to be a poor Christian. But dear friends, it is also a test and maybe a harder one to be a wealthy Christian. But the point for both brothers is this. Your identity is not in what you have in life, 
but is in Christ who died for you. If your physical state is marked by poverty, know that in Christ you have been made rich in spirit. And friend, if you are rich in this life, humble yourself to serve others with it, with your wealth, as Christ, who though he was rich, became poor for our sake, so that we by his poverty might become rich. Enduring the trial of poverty and enduring the trial of wealth in this life is not found in knowing what to do with money, but found in knowing who we are in Christ. Christian in trial, joyfully pursue your security and identity in Christ above all. Whether you are rich or whether you are poor, in this life, find your identity not in the things of this world, but in the things that this world can never do for you. Keith and Kristen Getty, modern hymn writers, wrote a song that we've sung several times in our church called My Worth is Not in What I Own. And the words are so appropriate for what James is saying here. In that song we sing, my worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. So I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in Him, no other. My soul is satisfied in Him alone. In trial, joyfully pursue your security and identity in Christ above all things. Above all things that this world can afford us. Fourth, we see that faith that steadfastly endures trial can do so with joy, looking forward to a great reward. Look at verse 12 with me. James says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. These trials that lead to our spiritual maturity. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Here now, James shifts back to the main point of this section of his letter, persevering in suffering through trial with joy for the purpose of steadfastness and maturity in our faith. And here he gets to the ultimate motivation for living out our faith like this, for enduring tests of our faith with perseverance and faithfulness to God. The Christian who perseveres in faith and endurance, who is made mature in his or her faith as they persevere in it, will be crowned with life promised by God to those who love him. Why why bother persevering in hardship in life? Because of verse 12. Because it is a blessing. It is to be happiest in the truest sense to receive the crown of life from God to those who love him and who persevere in faith. This crown that James talks about, much like the leafy wreath that an ancient Olympian champion would receive, is not a symbol of authority and rulership over others, but a symbol of victorious endurance. Think of the first marathon runner thousands of years ago to complete that race in competition, to receive that leafy crown atop his head as one who endured unto victory. If you are prone to see striving through trial as pointless, as tedious, as meaningless, see the point of it this morning. There awaits the reward of eternal life from the author of life himself for each one who perseveres trial with joy and steadfastness, trusting Jesus every moment of the way. Friends, I hope you would see that this reward is so much better than often we think. Enduring suffering and trial with joy 
with faith, with steadfastness for the reward of eternal life, friends, is not the same as working hard at a job you hate all week so that you can relax and watch football on your big screen TV on the weekend. The Christian life is not spent working for the weekend. Quite different. Remaining steadfast in trial has the reward of relationship with God, of knowing the Lord who created all things that we see and you yourself. The reward of remaining steadfast in trial is to have a growing faith that is so much more than merely hope for a brighter tomorrow. It is to have a closeness with Jesus who gives you life by dying for your sins so you can be made right with God the Father. Your reward, Christian, for counting it all joy when you are beset by all kinds of trials is that through them, the real life that Christ died and rose again to give you becomes more vivid, becomes clearer. It fills your whole existence as day by day you see more and more of the faithfulness of God to do in you what you could not do for yourself and all this more and more each day until we see him face to face. And every hard thing we fought to endure with faith becomes another marker along the road of God's work to make us more like Jesus. Glory in the reward that awaits you for persevering in trial with steadfastness. And Christian, endure it. Endure for a great reward. Press on for this reward. Do not plod through the drudgery of today simply for a break tomorrow, but press on in endurance that you might grow in holiness to receive the prize that God has for you, life eternal in the deep and abiding knowledge of God and the ineffable joy of being united forever to Christ your Savior. Listen to the words of Paul who writes in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 15. Paul says, whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Everything else is worthless compared to this, says Paul. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. Every good thing in my life is garbage compared to Jesus, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which came through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, says Paul, But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of you who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Dear friend, enjoy suffering. Christian, persevere with joy, not because trial makes you happy, but because you're looking forward to a reward that no one can take from you. Fifth and finally, we see in these verses that sincere faith endures trial with joy, having hearts brought to life by God. That's the condition for enjoying suffering. Or, or let me put it, that, say that differently. Taking, uh, finding joy in the midst of suffering. By having hearts, with having hearts that are brought to life by God. James closes this section by showing that there are both deadly and life-giving ways to endure trial. 
And that each of them has to do not with the substance of the trial itself, but with the orientation of the individual's heart. Listen to these verses. Beginning in verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You may find it interesting to know that the words trial or test and the word temptation are in Greek the same word. They come from the same root. In verse 2, we have in our English Bibles the word translated as trial or testing. But here in verse 13 and 14, we have it translated as temptation or to be tempted. So why the difference? Why do we translate it differently in these two places? The answer to that question is context. And the difference in the context of verse 2 and the context of verses 13 and 14 is the intent of difficult circumstances. You see, God's intention for allowing difficult things in our lives is to bring about stronger faith in those who love him. Thus, trials are like verses 2 and, and the earlier parts of this chapter tell us, trials are a means of testing and revealing the genuineness of our trust in God. That's, how he, that's what he intends our trials to produce. But our hearts, which from the moment of birth are stained and constrained by sin, our hearts, contrary to God's intention, would rather see trials as a thing to avoid, not a thing to endure. So rather than enduring, our sinful hearts look for a way out. They look for a means of escape. When pressed by stressful circumstances, when, when pressed by hard choices or sudden loss or deep pain, the sinful heart says, I want out. And so we look for ways to escape what seems painful. We turn to alcohol, sex, violent expressions of anger, worldly wealth, secular psychology, mindless entertainment, you name it. Whatever it takes to make what's hard go away. Our hearts tell us, go after this, chase after this, find fulfillment in this thing. Anything but God, anything to make the hurting stop, anything to make the pressure abate, go after it. Even if just for a moment... James says that all these temptations, all of these are temptations, the desires of our heart that lure us to take the easy way, the happy way, the way that makes us feel good, even, even if that moment of pleasure is, is just for a second. Our hearts say to us, be happy, find pleasure, do what feels good. And when we bite down on the lure of our heart's desires, sin sets its hooks and drags us off like fish on a line to our doom. But do not be deceived, dear friends, about the nature of sin. The sinful desire of our hearts is to be happy. But the better desire of our God and Father is for us to be holy. Sin and its so-called rewards may glitter and flash and put on a pretty show. But the good and perfect gift, every good and perfect gift from God is different. Holiness, unlike happiness, does not seek to soothe what hurts or to grease the skids of life, but it exists, they exist to change who we are at the most fundamental level. This is the good and perfect gift of God, holiness, 
sanctification, Christ-likeness, restoration of relationship with God, which we have broken by our sin. And see here that God gives it to us. God gives His good and perfect gift of salvation, of holiness, of this process of being made in the image of Jesus in this life. He gives it to us, not with bait and hook, but by the promise of His true and spoken Word. Our desires lead to sin and death. But God's will is to give us life that we cannot bring about for ourselves. And not to drag us away to our doom by that life that he has given, by that gift that he has given, but to pull us, sometimes kicking and screaming against our will, in the direction of Jesus to a life that we know is much better. What we need to endure trial is not a dose of emotional ibuprofen, but a whole new life and a whole new heart altogether. God commands us to consider it all joy, to consider it pure joy when we encounter trials of various kinds, not because we receive eternal life by enduring well, but because we endure well, having been brought to life by God through faith in His Son. Real faith, genuine faith, endures suffering and trial with joy because we've been brought from death to life by God and His grace through faith in Jesus. Friend, every one of you in this room, entrust your heart to the God of life who will enable you to endure trial with pure joy this way. Do you want to be able to endure trial with joy? Then do it this way. Having been brought to life through faith in Jesus. Sometimes you can't help but take what's broken to an expert to have it fixed. So far, I haven't run into any problems with this typewriter, my favorite typewriter, that I can't fix on my own. With a little bit of YouTube and uh, Google searching and a couple of very tiny screwdrivers, I've been able to fix most anything that's gone wrong. But I have another typewriter at home that the the ribbon wheel, the ribbon advance wheel does not work, which means I can't type without destroying the ribbon. I don't know how to fix it. I'm too cheap to take it to an expert. But that's what it needs. I need to take it to somebody who knows the inner workings of the machine far better than I ever could. If, if I could take it to the manufacturer, if they were still around, I would do that if I could afford it. Sometimes you can't help but take what's broken to an expert to have it fixed. When faced with trial, we attempt to navigate it with faith in our own abilities. Even the very best that we can do leads to more sin and death. If I started digging into that typewriter on which the the ribbon advance wheel does not work with a screwdriver and a couple YouTube videos, before you know it, I'd have a lot of loose screws, more than I already have, and parts laying all over the house, and now not a typewriter, but pieces of a typewriter. The very best I can do in my own life when I try to deal with suffering on my terms, when I pursue happiness rather than holiness, the very best that I can do is destroy my life. Something has to change. We need to be given what we do not have. We need spiritual life to endure trial with joy. We need wisdom to see things rightly. We need perspective to endure well. And more than anything, we need a mighty God to set our gaze upon. And the very same God to bring our cold, hard, dead hearts to life as we trust Him. It's the only way we'll do what James is instructing us to do. James himself has said so. Our desires lead us to sin and to death. We know this much is true. 
in our sin, we know that we deserve, Scripture tells us, death for our sins. A separation from God. Not just, not just a, a, a period of, of disfellowship from God, but an eternity apart from Him. That's what our sin deserves. But God in His love is so much better than we are. Because when people are unjust to us, what we want is vengeance. We want, we want justice. But God, who, who does not say no to justice, goes about it a different way. God makes a means of, of uh, placing all of the wrath, all of his anger, all of his righteous judgment that we deserve, uh, placing that on somebody else, a substitute to take it for us. That substitute is Jesus, his own son, God made flesh, who lived a life without sin. The only one who ever could do it, the only one who ever has done it, the only one who ever will do it. And having lived a life without sin, Jesus died on a cross. And there as He hung, He hung in your place and mine as all of the fullness of God's righteous and deserved wrath for our sin was placed on the shoulders of Jesus. And He died there to pay the penalty for our sin. But this Jesus whom God sent because He loves us did not remain dead. He was raised from the grave three days later to demonstrate His victory over sin and death and the same victory over sin and death for every person who had placed their faith and trust in Him. Recognizing that though our sin has separated that, that while our sin has separated us from God and there is nothing we can do to fix that on our own, that God has taken care of the problem for us. Everyone who trusts their life to Jesus this way is as James says, brought forth by the word of truth, the gospel, the good news that Jesus died for sinners so that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures, so that everyone who trusts in Jesus would, would have some uh, uh, installment on the resurrection life even in this day. Or that we have life that is not constrained and stained by sin anymore, but now lives that are being made new and transformed by the holiness of God. That we would be those that are messengers and, and ambassadors of reconciliation to a world that needs to be reconciled to God. Friend, we cannot endure trial and suffering with faith and joy if we've not been brought to life by God this way. Right. So entrust your heart to the God of life who will enable you to do this very thing yeah. and to do it with pure joy. Let's pray.